Put that coffee down. That's a clown question, bro. Okay, here we go. This is Off Script with Lance Erline and Eric Layden, another episode. Excited to be here today. Um, although this podcast is going to be a little different for a couple reasons. First, we have two guests this week, whom we will get to shortly. But also, this week's podcast comes during a time of great turmoil in our country. It's uh, June 2nd, 2020, and nine days ago, we watched the murder of George Floyd by a police officer in Minneapolis. And what has unfolded since then has been a disturbing and unfortunate chapter of American history. Justified anger turned into gatherings and marches in support of the Black Lives Matter movement, But then those were quickly overshadowed by agitators and opportunists trying to steal the moment by using violence and destruction of property and looting to cause utter chaos. I feel it would be a disservice to the listeners and to our guests if we didn't talk about this because whether you listen to this podcast this week uh, or if you listen to it two years from now – You should know that it has consumed us over the past 10 days and will certainly be relevant in whatever it is we discuss here over the next hour. Um, I, of course, can only speak for myself, and I look forward to hearing the thoughts of the rest of you. But right now, I'm angry, and I am sad. I'm tired. I am struggling with how to explain to my kids what's going on and explain the differences um, and reasoning behind the peaceful protests and the Black Lives Matter movement, and at the same time explain what's going on and why people are setting fire to our neighborhood and looting our stores, you know, that they're seeing not 100 yards from our house. So this entire show is not going to be about this, but it's important for you whenever you're listening to know what it is we've all been dealing with over the last week. Okay. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Stark Sands, who I've known since I was 18 years old. We were roommates in college. He has since moved uh, from Los Angeles to New York, where he's got a an amazing career in both theater and film two-time Tony nominee. He was uh, in shows like Kinky Boots and Journey's End, uh, American Idiot, which is the Green Day musical. I I like to think that the majority of his foundation and process he learned from me. Uh, I have no doubt that he'll get into that. Uh, More importantly, his wife, who's sitting next to him, who I I met uh, before they got married. Uh, I I tried to call her off of it, but to no avail. (laughs) Gemma's a uh, a published author of a book that I just read called Soccer Women. That's a biography of uh, the women's soccer game. I found it 
absolutely fascinating as a sports fan. So much information that I had no idea about that I can't wait to dig into with Gemma. Um, and um, I'm just really excited to have both of you guys on. Appreciate you guys being here. And um, I guess let's uh, let's dig in after my long-winded intro. <laughs> well, thank you. The feeling is mutual. It's really exciting to do this, uh, knowing that I didn't have to prep too much other than just try to remember some fun college anecdotes. Um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it is a crazy time and, uh, we live in Westchester, which is, um, we're in a little village called Bronxville. We are, uh, 30 minutes North of New York city. So we are in a little bit of a bubble we thought. Um, but Gemma can speak to this just today. She went into our neighborhood, which is, you know, a five minute walk away to grab some essentials and, uh, yeah. I mean, it's difficult. I, I, I see all the the conflicts and I, I today they, they were sort of boarding up the stores in town and, and obviously there's a part of me that's worried because, you know, we're here and we have kids and then there's another part of me that thinks, well, yeah, you know, it's it's a very privileged neighbourhood. It's it's a mostly white neighbourhood and that hasn't sat well with me really since we moved here and I haven't really known how to address it i i feel a lot of uh solidarity with with the protesters um and i i feel as though the country and the world has become more and more divided uh i do think there are people agitating and looting unnecessarily and that's that's also really frightening um i i don't know how you begin to change things without something kind of big happening and and maybe this is it i hope it's i hope it begins uh a dialogue and a and a change and and that things become more equal because i just i i hope for that and i think a lot of we've all been hoping for that for a long time it's hard to see a way through it have you talked to uh family back in in london and everybody is safe and sound. Yeah, everybody's safe and sound. I mean, it's 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 difficult because I feel there's a lot of ineptitude um, in our in our respective governments, and I don't feel as though the pandemic has been dealt with in a um, strategic and scientific manner by by either government. Um, certainly, in Britain per capita, I think we have the highest death rate in the world. Um, so. And now they're reopening again. Uh, and, you know, I have my my mum is one of the people who's supposedly sheltering and they've told sheltering people they can go out. And, you know, so so I think what's frightening is is a feeling of powerlessness and a feeling that um, things aren't being managed as 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 well and as cohesively as we would like. You know, it's easy to look at other countries like we've looked at New sure. Zealand and see that things are being managed better there and death rates are being kept down. And so, yeah, it's a scary time. It's like, it's like everything packed into one, you know, it's like a whole history channel weekend, like in <laughs> 20 minutes. Just. I, I think it's going to be interesting to see. We have four people on the podcast, three different households and the way that we experience just to stay for a second on the protest and in all forms, whether it becomes more violent, whether it's peaceful, whatever the case may be, 
we have children at different ages. We have different backgrounds. We live in different areas. Um, I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, to have common discussions and to see how different everyone's story ends up being about this specifically. And then the pandemic will be a separate discussion because that's going to be different, but maybe a little more common. I had a discussion with my, um, my, my oldest son and my oldest son is out of the house and he is, he's always been someone who has been, he's gotten along with everybody and has a lot of friends who don't look like he does, you know, people of color. And, and, and it's just, that's, that's how he's always been. That's who he is. But now he's very worried. He sees things on social media. He's worried he's going to be an unnecessary target because of this, that, and the other. He's, and I finally told him, I said, look, Drake, you really have to get off social media. And I've told people this. I've said it on my radio show. If you stay and watch the, the videos that are viral all the time about the very worst of people, in any regard, you start to become afraid. You become you generalize, you see people in a way that they shouldn't be seen. And I thought it was very important for him to get off of, get off of social media. I said, get off of social media and do this with me. Go with me today to a March. I'm going with a local rapper and a guy who's a friend of mine, Bun B, who is really just like the mayor of Houston, basically, and Trey the truth. And they've got a peaceful protest planned. And they said, we will not put up with anyone trying to infiltrate this, this, this protest and hijack this. This is not what we're doing. We're with the family of George Floyd, with the mayor, with police officers who are marching with us. And I said, I want you to come down and see what reality looks like. Because what I did over the weekend, and this is not to look, people putting social media stuff up is great. It's amazing. Well, I said, I really, you know what? Why don't I just pick the phone up and call friends who are black and let's have our conversations that maybe we haven't had for, you know, in, in one case, it might've been for two weeks, but in another case, it was a guy who I've known for years. And we just, and I said, tell me more, tell me your stories. Tell me more. Let me listen a little bit here. And then for another guy, this guy I used to play basketball with on a regular basis. And I saw him hurting on social media. And I reached out personally and just said, I hear you. I see. I just want you to know, Let's let's have some dialogue back and forth because I want to know the real people. I want to remind myself that this is what's really going on is real people that really hurt. And what I found amazing is we did a radio show on Monday and we didn't know what the show was going to be. I mean, we, we had an idea, but we didn't know. And it was amazing to have people, listeners, primarily African-American listeners who all had stories for us. And they just said, look, this is what's going on. And it wasn't the, it wasn't rabble rousing. It wasn't yelling and screaming. It was people just like anyone else. And that's why I think it's important that, that people don't rely on social media to tell them, well, this is what life is now. No, this yeah. is not what life is now. This is an exaggeration of what life is. You go find life for yourself by picking up a phone or going and meeting someone when it's safer. Yeah. And finding out for yourself. I'll let you guys speak to that. But I know that that was something that was heartbreaking for me as with an older son because I know he was scared and fearful. And I said, come with me. And he's coming with me to the march after we're done with this podcast. And wow. he'll be reminded of what life really is today. We are of a generation that has watched this change happen. And what I mean is the social media, the introduction of this extra layer of communication that we didn't have growing up. You know, we're both in our early 40s and um, obviously Eric and I are the same age. Um, I remember memorizing people's phone numbers 
You know, I still have those numbers in my head before there were cell phones, when there was just landlines and you call somebody and if they're not there, they're just not there and you leave a message and everything has changed. And so I am pretty anti social media. I I have accounts. I rarely use them. Um, Usually I use them when I have a job that I need to promote because that seems to be a justified use, but it's scary to me that everyone is, that so many people are getting their news and their information off of these social media sites. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and it's not actual news. And even if they, if they see something, if they don't click on the article and get into the article, the, a lot of times the, the headlines are misleading. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's, it is mm-hmm. just scary. And I wrestle with being on it or off it because um, I'm seeing the effects of it on the people in, that I know people in my life that are, that subscribe to it. And, um, and are getting swayed in different directions because of this stuff. And I am so sort of defiantly opposed that I wonder if I'm just bunkering myself in a different way. I, I've been having conversations daily about social media, certainly mm-hmm. right now. And it's, it's to me, Lance knows my feeling on it. And Stark, I think you guys know my feeling on it. And, you know, I've been off Twitter and I've been off Facebook and I keep Instagram for, yeah, just like you said, like, you know, to keep some sort of presence, to be able to promote a show that producers like you to promote. Um, but I'm kind of getting to a place where I've got, I don't know, 6,000 followers. I mean, if, if, if 400 of them watch my show that I've promoted because I promoted it, like I, that's not going to make or break my show, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so what, why do I like, what is everything you post now? Like, uh, you know, Katie took a picture of me the other night and I didn't even know she took it till two weeks later. And I said, Oh, that's kind of cool. I'm I'm going to, I'm going to post that. And then Lance gave me shit and said, man, how many times did you take that? Did you decide what you're going to wear Was it an outfit? And we've, we've gotten to this place where it's like it, it actually was just organic. Katie came out on the balcony, saw me and was like, that's a picture that I want to remember in my life. So she took this picture. So two things are at play here. One, you can't even look at a picture of me now and not say to yourself, what was he trying to prove here? Is he trying to show people that he knows how to play a banjo? Is he trying to brag that he's on a balcony in La Jolla? Uh, why is he wearing an Astros hat, but rolled up like all these things, right? When truly it was just me on a Sunday playing a fucking banjo. Was it? The other thing, that goes, <laughs> the other thing that goes into play here is, which I find really interesting. Having talked to Katie about it is she's like, now she was like, why did I post it? Now it's not mine anymore. She was like, that was an image that I wanted for my, for me. And now it's not mine anymore. Now it's all of your followers and all of my followers and it's, it's everyone's. And, and so it's not even special anymore. Right. And so those two things are like factors that I just keep wrestling with. And it's like, do I really need this for, for publicity purposes? And, and what is, what good is coming out of it for me? And is that good outweighing the bad? Because most of the time I spend time on there doing the same thing I just talked about. I'm like, bro, this is not about the Gandhi quote. This is about you without a shirt showing me you have 15 abs. Like, I don't give a fuck about this post, right? But then I'm like, why am I on it? I could be reading a book. I could be reading soccer women right now and I'm looking at Instagram. 
Gemma had a great um, description of Instagram years ago when it first sort of hit and really hit hard. And she said, it's not real life. It's the, it's, what was your, what did you say? Something about being your. It was really genius. Quote. No, I, I just want to, yeah. I want to get it right. Um, she said, it's like the curated version of your life. Yeah. Of course. It's, it's a curated self. It's not, it's not real. You know, what you're doing is you're putting out there a version that has been shaped by other people. You know, if you look at Facebook, that's shaped by like a guy. Right. Come out of Harvard, who was like a, a dude bro, and you know he thought, well, what social media? Okay, it's it's who are you? You're a list of the things you like. You're a list of the people you're friends with, or you know you're 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 a combination of categories, and that's kind of what we've become online. It's like a it, it's a combination of the things that we like that, that that makes us who we are, and the things that we say. Then it's become this tool for for tracking us and for then targeting us with really now they're getting so good at, at targeting ads on Instagram, oh. terrifying. Mm-hmm. Like you can even mention something and out loud and not on your phone, and it will hear you, yeah. and it'll somehow a minute later it'll show up in your feed. We've all seen that. That's too. That's it's, very suspicious. Do you have an Alexa? I do in my house. Yes. Dude, I do too. I'm sure she would never do anything wrong. <laughs> we have we have we have a Sonos speaker that has Alexa <laughs> built in, and Gemma from the beginning was like, "We're not letting that. That's speaker is not going to be used." In her. Say that again, Stark. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck was that? <laughs> we, I I like kind of didn't believe it until we were sitting around the kitchen one night with another couple, and we were talking about. Uh, bourbons and um, and I was telling about this amazing bourbon that I really like uh, of this Michter's and we were talking about it we were drinking it and we were sharing it and we went on and on and we talked about are you bourbon. allowed to talk about other bourbons on this podcast because I know you. Have- <laughs> I know that's right that's right we're not allowed to talk about anything other than Blackland which by the way you will be getting a care package from Blackland so let us know what you like to drink tequila gin bourbon rye and uh, our our sponsors at, at, over at Blackland Distillery from Fort Worth are going to send it over to you so awesome. nicely done um, we were talking about it and. That evening at like 11 o'clock, 1130, I get a screenshot from my friend Crispin, who was at my house, of an ad that came up when he went to Amazon.com to buy like uh, something for his kid. And on there was Michter's. On his phone? On on his Amazon phone. Mm. And I'm just like, dude, this is unplug, unplug. Nope. It's just not worth saying... Hey Alexa, what's the weather going to be like? It doesn't. That's not a. That's not a good balance of of information. <laughs> you give me the weather, and you get everything in my life. That's not <laughs> equitable, Alexa. Jeff Bezos. They listen to you anyway. There, there's been there was like an Apple blower who came out and said that even if you have Siri turned off, they still listen to you, which is, I mean, when you think about it, it's really frightening. Like they can build up this entire. I, don't, I mean, I don't want to sound like a total like tin, you know, tin hat kind of person, but there is there is a lot going on. I think with um, with tech and the way that our like you know attention and our uh, selves are being kind of exploited, uh, and I think that's like from the commodification of the things that we like to um, 
basically the the kind of radicalization of of people online like we've watched you know we've seen people of our parents generation really actually become radicalized in whatever belief system they have it's mm-hmm. quite they've kind of gone further into that belief system and it's so much to do with facebook and things that are shared and echo chamber echo chambers yeah. and um so i think it's all pretty pretty scary i think what's what's also scary is how we claim to be a cynical people and yet we continue to be fooled online the russians or or whatever operatives whatever troll farms it is so easy to punt the americans it is so easy to play them against each other and it doesn't take long to get on if you're if you're someone who is more analytical you can go and recognize any time that there is a a a tweet that is starting to become a a heavily populated tweet boom here comes somebody with seven numbers behind their name four followers and they've got the most incendiary commentary either far left or far right and 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 i see people commenting and i'm like and i just right away say you're not a real person congratulations on your troll farm yeah. this i know people say bot it's the same thing and yet i can't believe how many people won't do the research to find out this isn't a real person yet they realize we really the terrorist acts that we need to take just need to be online because we can separate an entire country and cause it to crumble just with just with basic online commentary from from an account that has four followers it's it's astounding anonymous voices yes and people buy in and it and it has an answer it, it has an aggregate effect to their well-being their mental well-being one of the images that was described once uh that really like made sense to me was you know you've if you take um if you take like weights and you put them on you know let's say like a fan and the fan spins as long as the weights are equally distributed from people in the middle that you know, and then the people, there's of course people on the far right, of course, people on the far left and there's people in between and it spins and it's spinning just fine. Right. But as you start to pull those weights to the outside and as you start to continually move people from the center and make them feel like they have to go far right or far left, then think about that weight now. And then you spin it and eventually it just breaks in fucking half. Right. It can't, there is no more balance. And I don't know. Maybe that's what this week is. I, yeah. I don't, I don't know, you know, but, but it, but eventually you can't sustain that. Absolutely. Yeah. You can't. Yeah. And Lance, you made me think of something that I was talking about the other day, just about online uh, troll farms and Twitter and the power that it has to influence people. Um, this idea of a free internet and how we've got to keep it free and no regulations and everybody's got to be able to, say what they want and freedom of speech and all that, you know, freedom of speech when it, when it was originated, it started out as like being able to stand on a soapbox and talk to as many people as could hear you. And there's a big difference between that and getting online and generating enough uh, uh, bots that will tweet this one idea that then people will see. And it, it, it gives it, it gives it cred. The more people that see it, and the more people that tweet it and retweet it, and even if those are not real accounts. Um, and I have a problem with that. I, I don't know it. You know, this, I, I feel like everybody should, be, should have to sort of sign up and, and, and provide a real name and a real like identity mm-hmm. to, to be able to have that uh, freedom to speak on the internet and say what they want to say. Because otherwise it's, it's, 
it's chaos. It's the Wild West. Speaking of the Wild West, you may not like the way that I'm going to turn this uh, this podcast. But as an Everton fan myself, <laughs> I need to know, Jim, I know you're a Leicester City supporter. And you guys came out of nowhere. I don't think the average sports fan in America understands what happened in 2015 and 16. Is the equivalent of it's the equivalent of I guess the Browns winning a Super Bowl. I don't it's hard to rec only different because in soccer it's the big six and your champion is going to come from the top six clubs. And that's basically it. And yet this team that had only been promoted like a year earlier, because I remember because they tied Everton in the final minutes. And I was like, well, this sucks. We just, we just tie we, we just tied up in the last 40 seconds of, of extra time to Leicester city. And then here you are the next year winning it all. Like that was astounding that that had, that must've been the most incredible feeling as a, as a supporter. I think I'm still not over it. And there's probably a part of me that thinks that we've paid for it, (laughs) you know, with what's happened to the world since like everything's kind of gone terribly wrong. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, when Stark first uh, and I first started dating, so Leicester were in the championship. I mean, I've been a fan since they were championship, Premier League, down back into League One, you know. So I've been through some really, really turgid games. In fact, my entire career as a Leicester fan <laughs> turgid. Until- For listeners who don't understand the structure of English sports, English football. Relegation. Right. There's yeah. The Premier League is the NFL. And then everything below that is like the lower leagues, the non- Championship. Yeah. 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 So so uh, Leicester City was down in like two, two leagues below the 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 a leagues is that yeah yeah Yeah. so so the first game that start came with me to um was was barnsley at home and bear in mind this is weird i mean i'm from london so we would fly back from new york then take a train up to leicester and then watch a really terrible (laughs) nil nil draw (laughs) so the first game he went to was barnsley at home i think it was one all and like you know a third of the way through the first half it was nil nil it was nil nil Great. Um, a, f- a third of the way through the first half, the, the announcer goes, well, the owner of a blue Vauxhall Astra. So <laughs> <laughs> Dark's looking at me like, what have you got me into? Like, what is this? And I remember like having several conversations where he was like, you live near Arsenal, you live near Tottenham. Like, you know, can't you go easy on yourself? You know, because it was it was bad. I was like, I can't. This is this is my team. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the, the season we went up to the Premier League, um, we very nearly went down. We, we performed like an incredible great escape. I was like nine months pregnant when we when we if we avoided relegation and like leaping around pubs, uh, not drinking, obviously, but leaping around pubs uh, wherever we could find to watch. The Let, OK, so people who don't understand relegation, Gemma was leaping around pubs because they didn't finish in what essentially is last place and you are kicked out of the league, the bottom three. And it is a monster celebration. It's like, we're still here next year. Yeah. And at the start of the next season, they had us, the odds for us to win the Premier League were 5,000 to one. And I think the odds for Elvis coming back to life were like 4,000 to one. (laughs) Super super unlikely. Yeah. The Loch Ness Monster being found was... (laughs) Better odds. Uh-huh. 
that's um, that's amazing. I I got into it a little bit around that time. I had been doing a job with a with a, a Spurs fan, and so I just ended up watching games with them. And I was and I, it's such a it's such a great sport, you know. And it's not a sport I grew up watching, obviously, but have watched more and more since. And it it's a phenomenal phenomenal sport um it's yeah and it's just i played lacrosse growing up and it's it's actually quite similar in the sense that like just the constant movement of lacrosse you know i mean it just you know where baseball and football um basketball is obviously quite different you know but outside on a field there's just a lot of stoppage whereas like soccer is just non-stop like the, the athletes involved in the in that sport are just remarkable and it's, it's oh sorry. Well, I just I mean, as somebody who came um came to the sport because of Gemma, um it it it's uh, I'm obsessed now. You mm-hmm. know, I, I a big part of our life is built around weekends because uh in the Premier League all the games are played pretty much Saturday, Sunday. Every once in a while you have like a midweek game. You guys know this. But um weekends are really, you know, here in the States, you can watch all the games if you want to, if you have NBC and if you subscribe to their app. And so we will regularly watch like four or five games over the course of the weekend. Our poor kids like couldn't care less. Um, I'm so excited that it's coming back. I think it's the first, like it's one of the first sports to come back. June 28th. Yeah. I believe is. Yeah, I am too. I'm really excited to take my disappointing ass kickings everywhere. Oh, we just lost it again in the last two minutes of extra time. What a surprise. Will there be fans in the stands for those? No. No. And what they've learned from the Bundesliga, which I know you guys, I know you Lance are watching, mm-hmm. um, is that the, apparently the home field advantage is gone. Doesn't, doesn't, it does, it's, it's not like it was um, in terms of results. So yeah, it's going to be a whirlwind of just like, you know, nine weeks of football, but crunched into a, like a, a very short time period. Well, so, you know, I got into, so I've been following World Cup soccer since 19, kind of 94, but really 98 when um, when France beat upset Brazil. And I had a friend who's Colombian, and he really got me into it. And we went to the Brazilian watch parties here in Houston. It was it, the, the most fun that I've ever had. It was incredible. And so I really started getting into it. So every four years, and then I said, you know, I've really got to start watching the Premier League. The MLS just doesn't do anything for me. I wish it did. And so finally, after um, – after the 2000 and gosh, what would it have been? Six, 10. I think after 14, I said, all right, this is it. So I chose Everton because I took an online quiz and I didn't want, the, I didn't want to do it easy. I didn't want the easy way out. I Good wanted to, these are my beliefs and these are my, you know, the standards. And so, and it ended up matching up with Everton, which is not the easy way to go, but I found out it's a lot like being a Houston sports fan, a lot like it, almost ridiculously the same. But I want to bring this up to you, Gemma, because the World Cup brought me into something that I really, really love now, which is watching my Saturday mornings, waking up and watching and supporting Everton. And what I think is great is that as somebody who's been in sports and done sports radio, I remember the 99 women's, you know, and by the way, you're the author of, of Soccer Women. And so that's why I want to get into this watching that 99 um, women's world cup team. And we had some, you know, some people are interested in it in sports radio. You fast forward now 20 years later and watching the skill level um, 
on the basketball side from when the women started the WNBA from which by the way is a pretty skilled 99 team on the on the on the on the pitch very skilled team by the way but when you see the attention of women's soccer last summer in the world cup and how much attention was given to the women's club here in the US the women's team and you see what's happened with the WNBA where the level of play has just really skyrocketed it really i think it's a, a tribute to the work and the dedication on on both fronts to continue to push. And I think the development, people behind the scenes of, in terms of developing those programs and having women in the game who are committing at an early age and seeing it all the way through the process, which is something that we didn't have when I was a kid. I think what what's really interesting about the women's game is it has been built by the players, almost entirely built by the players. You know, the, the the women's team in 99, you know, they most of them played together throughout the 90s and they did it with absolutely nothing. They 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 didn't know they could ask for anything. So they they, you know, they stayed in the most budget hotels or they had no childcare available. You know, I remember Joy Fawcett, who was um, one of the first women uh, USA uh, women's players to have a baby, saying that she went to play in a tournament. She'd been told she could bring her you know, two, two or three month old infant with her, she got to the accommodation. They were like, oh, no babies. So she had to go and find somebody in town to stay with. Um, and, you know, it's still, the battle is still going on. I think that's, that's sort of, when you look at it over the course of what's happened in the last 20 years, it's, it's incredible because the American women's team is absolutely sublime and a, and a joy to watch and and I think that so many other countries have followed their lead and and the game has really improved and it began with the American women really um but there are so many obstacles to overcome still there's still they they still don't receive uh equal pay to the men's team uh you know despite having won everything there is to win um and and there are so many problems with that. It really is just there's there's no other way to spin it than to say it's just it's gender inequality. And certainly in in England, the women's game was banned uh, in the during the just after the First World War. There was a really successful uh, women's team in England who was who were raising money for the troops uh, during the First World War, and they became so successful they they actually played at Goodison Park. Uh, they sold out. Um, there were, you know, crowds of fifty, sixty thousand people, and the the men's FA got so nervous about their popularity that they banned all women from playing uh, football, soccer. For I think it was like it, it, the ban ended in the nineteen seventies, and the same thing in Brazil too. Women were banned from playing football for forty, fifty years. Um, so it's really hard to have that starting place be, you know, six or seven decades behind where it should be, you know. Um, and I think it's it's testament to everything that's really great about this country that that the women have have um, have fought for everything and have shown that you know that kind of dedication and that kind of effort can pay off. Do you think? And all these stories are in your book, and and I found them fascinating going through the journey. Christine Lilly talks about those accommodations. She talks about how just awful they were they had to set up their own practices in like parking lots um hmm. but do you think that that led to them being as tough as they were 
You know, they were not given the the accommodations and they weren't as soft as say maybe some of the other teams were. And by the way, the men's team, you know, who was given everything that they needed. But this is a team that had to practice in a parking lot, had to stay in budget motels. Um, that fuel, that anger, that toughness, how much of a role did that play, do you think, in them being as successful as they were? That's really interesting. And I posed that question to a few of the 99ers. And I, I think that they also felt that it had spurred them on and it had given them a, a sense of camaraderie that they might not otherwise have had because they had to do everything themselves. Um, things are still kind of weighted against the women's team. So I think they still do have that drive and that camaraderie. Um, I certainly think somebody like Megan Rapino um, hasn't had it easy uh, and is definitely um, somebody we can look to as a sporting icon who is um, leading the way to a, a more kind of progressive future, both both in sport and outside of sport. Um, but yeah, I, 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 it's it's a tough one because you don't yeah. want. It's like with your kids, you want to you want to protect them, but at the same time, you think, well, a little adversity is gonna is gonna you know toughen them up. Absolutely. Um, speaking of toughing them up, a, a follow up on that. Um, Michelle Akers talked about the injury that she had and how she was on the sideline and she was getting ridiculed for being too tired or being a woman and just not being able to toughen up and play. Um, however, about two pages later, Michelle Akers talks about how she likes to watch these teams now in 2020 because they're being criticized and written about and, and they've got fans yelling at them. And so they're being treated on par with the men. That's she feels that that's a, that's, that's an interesting dichotomy there because I think that as a sports fan and someone who has attended more male sporting events than female sporting events, I see the way not necessarily ways that I would condone, but I see the way that fans talk to athletes and they say some pretty horrific things. Again, I chirp at athletes if I'm close enough to do it. And my voice, we all know, is loud enough to do it. Not horrifically, but I certainly am going to chirp as a fan of the other team. That comes along with sports. I, I'm not going to lie. When I read the chapter, I, I thought of, about Michelle Akers and said, well, but you can't have both, right? You, you can't. You can't want to be treated on a level in which you're going to be criticized like the men, but then not, but, but let someone telling you you're too tired rattle you. I don't think that's what you were trying to do in the way you worded the chapter, but I'd be interested to hear if I'm just a chauvinist asshole by thinking that, or, or if there's a, yeah, or, but, or if you can understand someone's feeling on that kind of, uh, interesting, you know, line. Well, I think this probably goes back to what we were saying earlier is that I think that one of the things that we have lost or maybe we've never really had it as a society is um, the capacity to hold many things true at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, you know, it's for her, she had she had quite a serious medical condition I and mean, she's just an absolute powerhouse. And, mm -hmm. and she can say whatever she likes. I would never. Sure. Um, 
dare to uh, tell her otherwise. Um, but she um, had a medical condition and, and there was a guy who came to the training session who was telling her she was weak because she had to sit out the training. And I think for her, she felt very much that he didn't understand that she she um, she she had a condition whereby she she couldn't um, she had to go lay down and like sleep on her kitchen floor for two hours after training. Um, and it was a condition that at the time was dismissed as being something that had been, you know, it was a, it was a psychosomatic and now obviously more and more information has come about and it is an actual inflammatory disease. Um, so she was having to combat that kind of misinformation, um, and that kind of attitude from, from the fans. And she, she just is someone who, who didn't want to be seen as weak. And so she didn't want to be, have somebody saying to her, Hey, you're too weak to take part. Um, because she certainly wasn't. She played with that condition. You know, she would have to come off at half time and have a have an IV drip inserted, and then go back on and play. Um, so I think, I but I think what you're talking about is like, is it okay to attend a women's game maybe and like hurl abuse with the women? I, I don't know that abuse is. <laughs> is that your words, Eric? I don't know that hurl abuse. Let's not tag me with her. Let's not tag me with hurl abuse. Oh, but I mean, like you would at a, at a men's soccer game or like whatever, right. but you know, well, of course. Um, but yeah, is it okay to kind of treat, treat women the same way? And, and I would argue like, you know, yeah, why not? I sure, mean, Pam, sure. Pam the same. For a rough tackle, you know, that there, there's been some real spicy, spicy, <laughs> you pointing at me. No, 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 no. I said, yeah, pay, pay, pay them the same. Not a problem at all. Pay them the same and you can treat them the same. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's, but yeah, it's, it's, um, it's definitely, I think, you know, we probably are guilty of being a little bit too um, vocal, negatively vocal of, of men's football. Um, certainly in, in England, I think that they get a lot of stick and they're kind of expected to, to, perform um you know almost as though they belong to us really um and I think that that's that's something that probably needs to be addressed and I and I think that culturally things are different in the women's game and probably the men's game can learn from the women's game I mean I, I also you know I love being on the terraces and telling people they're rubbish so what you know <laughs> that's on a on a on a bad day or saying that was that was you know shit you should have scored that that's that's part of the game isn't it it's, it's i just i love listening to to me um the the english and sometimes scottish it's usually scottish play-by-play -play. it's not gonna be i mean i'm sorry um color commentators it's not gonna be a scottish play-by-play -play voice but to me listening as someone who's in sports listening to the descriptions of what i see on the field mm. it's like god I'm so fucking jealous. That's that's brilliant. I need to use, and I've actually gotten my phone out, gone to notes, and like when I'm because I do NFL draft work too, and so I have to be descriptive about what I see on the field about a player's strengths and weaknesses. And I just thought I can't say that a player, and sometimes in in his backpedal, he's complete and utter shit. Like I can't say it like that, but I do. But in you know, in all honesty, I do find the way that the English discuss um soccer slash football and the way that the announcers I, i'm curious to start now that you're a newcomer to the fans since you you met uh, to the sport since you met Gemma. do you take anything from the fans that you've seen and the characters that you've seen can you use any of that energy 
with anything that you do? Because I'm telling you right now, I do. I'm taking some of it. I'm just giving you an example of it. Yeah, I, you know, we, we haven't been able to go, we go to about one game a year um, uh, because we go to London and then we have to get all the way to Leicester. I love people watching. I love observing and 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 uh, trying to make mental notes, like you said. Um, one thing that I, I mean, the most passionate fan that I've ever seen is sitting next to me. <laughs> <laughs> and you should, I love hearing her talk about how we really should learn a lot from the women's game because you should see her in our living room on Saturday morning at 7.30. <laughs> if we're losing, and if we're losing to a team that she does not like, it is hurling abuce. Mm-hmm. Lots of abuse is hurled. Yeah, <laughs> and I hate you and you fucking fuckers and, and you know everything you can imagine. Like you gotta get it, but out English, somewhere. so it's it's like it's like you get a pass. You get a pass, Lance. It's a little, you know, Lance. I don't know. It was televised. I'm sure. I don't know if you ever saw it. You probably go back and find it somewhere online. Mid July 2011, there was a, a five on five tournament in a little town called Devon. <laughs> Um, and I was, I was a part of this tournament and, um, huh. I was in, I was in the finals. Um, wow. I, w- I, w- I was, it was, it was, um, I think probably four, four went into a shootout penalty kicks. It went um, to PKs with you. It went to, it went to PKs. Um, I was playing with Jim's mother. Uh, she was on my team. And, I, had, no, I uh, haven't seen this one yet. Okay, no, it's a, you need to go watch it. It's one of the all time. I mean, if they were going to rank <laughs> am, amateur uh, football matches, th- this finals would probably be in the top five. Um, and um, I was set with the third PK. Um, I did a little okie doke. I looked bottom left, went upper right. Classic <laughs> laden. Classic, classic laden. Classic laden, yeah. Classic laden. Uh, bent the shit out of it. Okay, <laughs> and uh, we bend won. It, bend it like Eric. Bend, yeah. bend it like bend it like like yeah. And uh, and we won, and it was uh, it was a pretty emotional time for for Gemma's family because Gemma's mom was on my team, and and Gemma was not on my team. She was on the other team, and uh, it was pretty it was pretty emotional. It was uh, but it was one of the most. I had I I actually hung it up. I hadn't played since. Yeah, you 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 retired defending champ. See, I'm going to be honest with you. I was I was not able to see that yet because I was spending most of my time watching this. <laughs> and oh, nice. Yeah. So that. So we're showing pictures of our phone on Streamyard that no one on a podcast can possibly yeah. see. So I yeah. my wife starts watching Six Feet Under. And I said, oh, let me look at this cast of six. I mean, six feet under is 19 years ago. So I'm start, I was, oh, Stark Sands. We're going to have him on a podcast. He's in two episodes. And I'm like, so I'm watching every episode. Uh, is that Stark? Is that Stark? Is that now I've got pictures of now Stark, yeah. not 2001 or 2002 Stark. Right. And so all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I think this is him. Pause. I tell my wife to pause, take a picture. Eric, is this your boy? He goes, save that picture. <laughs> so that was on him, actually. Held up is from yeah, I think the first episode that I was on, which is on season two. And ironically, or as fate would have it, my hair is about as long as it Very was. Similar. Yes, that many years ago, for different reasons. 
Um, but uh, yeah, you, it's like full circle, Lance. Thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. So I, was that your first, it was one, it was maybe your second gig, wasn't it? You were in school in 2002, weren't you? Eric and I graduated in 2001. Okay. Um, in the spring of 2001. And that was in 2002 when that, when I shot that in the early 2002 um, and it aired, a you know, right around the time of the Golden Globes. Um, I was very lucky. It was my first job. Um, it was just one of those where I, I guess was the right fit. I, I had to read opposite Lauren Ambrose who played, um, uh, the Claire, show, Claire. Mm-hmm. and, um, and I was a fan of the show. So I was like, you know, pretty, pretty excited just to audition for it. And to get to that point, I wasn't in the union yet. I didn't have my SAG card. And so they had to pay a penalty, um, a fine in order to cast me. And the story that I got from the from the uh, the casting director after it happened was that she did not tell them at my final callback with Lauren. She didn't put that information in to the room uh, with Alan Paul, Alan Ball, and Alan Poole and the, the different uh, producers that were there that saw me and Lauren read together. And after I left the room in our chemistry read, uh, I guess she had told them, "This is the guy that I that I hope." you like and she asked them so is this the guy and they were like that's the guy yes that that's it done and she said okay well he's you're you're gonna have to pay the fine because he's not in the union yet but if he's the guy he's the guy and and uh, you know i think she may have thought that um if she had told them that i wasn't that they would have not seen me they would have been like no no no, we're not we we, let's not do that so i grateful to them for creating that opportunity and um it it helped me in such the timing was so perfect because um, I misspoke earlier. The episode didn't air until later. Season one was happening. Season one uh, won the Golden Globe right at right before my first episode aired. And so everybody was tuning in and then there I was. So um, it was, yeah, it was, it was a really great, great, very lucky start. Yeah. The, the, and for those listening, I mean, as an actor, you're coming out of theater school, you're, you're, we, we Stark and I are in LA, we're hustling to try to, get agents and managers and, and all this, but, but step one and, and perhaps the biggest hardest hurdle to get over is getting your SAG card it, because it does cost more money, right? So you have to, people do all sorts of things, background work, if they can get vouchers, enough vouchers, they get it, but, but it costs the production money to get to basically what's called Taft Hartley, you, which means you're now in the union. So it's really hard to get your union card because productions don't want to read you if you're not in the union, but how do you get in the union if productions don't read you? So that's when Stark talks about that, that's like a huge step. And his just happened to me on like a golden globe winning show. Mine was on a Pepsi commercial. <laughs> um, <laughs> his Pepsi commercial. What's that? It was a Super Bowl commercial. So that's that, right. Not yeah. Bad. Yeah, that's Eric. Let's give that's a proper true. context. Jared. That's right. But uh, but I remember how big of a deal that was when you booked Six Feet Under. It was so exciting because it was such a big show. And it was, you know, it, it, HBO was starting to become HBO at that time. Like they really weren't what they are now, but they they certainly were start on the way to, to doing that. Um, I was trying to remember, Stark, what happened. um that took you and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe what, what took you to New York was journeys in the play you did, which, um, 
which uh, you did in probably about 2006, I want to say seven. Okay. So, and that's what ended up moving you from LA to New York. And then you, you stayed there. Yeah. I, um, Eric and I were in theater school together. Um, We were roommates uh, freshman year. Uh, We lived in the same house, sophomore year. We were roommates again, junior year. And then by senior year, we decided we had enough and we were going (laughs) to have one year of college where we didn't live in the same building. Um, You know why? (laughs) <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, I, I have a theater background. I have a BFA, um, that is based in stage performing, but of course we're in LA and we both start getting very lucky and working and, and then building on that in LA doing TV and film. Um, I did a movie, um, about world war two called flags of our fathers, which was a Clint Eastwood film. Um, and I had sort of a small to medium sized part, but I was one of the guys, you know, and one of the, my, it was my first soldier role actually. And the movie, uh, was, was good. Uh, a few weeks after it came out, I got a call from my agent saying, Hey, so there's a casting director in New York who's trying to find somebody to play a young soldier in this Broadway revival called journey's end. And he saw you in the movie and he wants to know if you'd be, if you'd be interested in auditioning for it. And I was like, what, you know, that's just audition for a Broadway play or anything. That was like the goal. One of the goals for me was to work on stage on a professional level. So, um, you know, he said, you know, you got to fly yourself out there. They're not going to fly you out. But if you happen to be in New York in in, in the next like two or three weeks, they'd love to see you. So I flew out. I stayed on my buddy's couch and I auditioned for the show. Um, uh, It's a straight play. It's a very historical play about World War I. and uh, set in 19, 1917. Uh, so I had to come in with an accent. I um, I got very lucky. And I and I, I was one of those auditions where I walked in and I couldn't do anything wrong. You know what I mean? It, where every, every single thing I did, the director and the casting director were like, okay, yes. Like It's like they'd been looking for a long time and somehow for some reason I fit. Uh, I That was what took me to New York in the first place. And I think one of the reasons it was such a perfect job was that the character in the story is new and he's a rookie and he's green and he just wants to like make everybody proud. And that's what I was experiencing as somebody who just flew, not only in the audition, but in playing the role is somebody who just wanted to get it right and was carrying this earnest energy that just was so excited to be there and just wanted to, just wanted to be successful. Um, the, uh, the, the show was very underattended. Uh, because it was 2007 and we were still trying to get out of Iraq. And um, and so people didn't have an appetite for, for a war story at that time. But we ran for five months. Um, uh, the show, every two weeks, the producers would come and tell us, hang in there. Uh, we're not closing yet, but you can obviously see that we're not selling tickets. You know, we were at 20% house. So that means in a thousand seat theater, there's 200 people spread out. And that's not a lot of people. What does that look like? What does that look like when you're on stage and, and, you know, I guess you can't compare it to a sold out house because at this point in your career, you'd never done a sold out house. I mean, maybe opening night, but other than that, you, you never had. So are you up there going like, what the fuck? Like I could hear people like chewing their peanuts or they're opening their bag of M&Ms and like, I hear a hearing aid, like feedback, like it's just so empty. That feels so empty. It, it did. And in, in a weird way, it lent itself to the story and to the show we were doing because it was about the quiet moments in the bunker 
on the front lines. And so there was background noise of like bombs and, um, you know, like whistles and things and like a little bit of gunfire um, until the end and when it gets very loud. But it was okay. I think it, it forced people to lean in and listen. We didn't wear mics, so we had to really project and mm. the audience had to really pay attention. Um, so yeah, it's hard. You know, it's, it's a good question because at the time, I, the only thing I knew was opening night, which was off the charts crazy, you know, like, like every time nothing's like that. Um, but, uh, but it really, it worked cause it was just me and my, there was no distraction from the audience, you know, uh, in terms of like responses and pe- people coughing and stuff. And, and there was definitely a lot of uh, feedback from, uh, uh, from, uh, uh, hearing aids because we had a very old <laughs> lot. That's a real thing. I didn't think that was Oh, yeah. oh, oh, that's a real thing. I remember Stark got me got me house tickets. I said, I'm coming to New York. Uh, you know, can't wait to see the show. Got house tickets. He sends it to me. I was like, see if you can give me an aisle. I like to be on the aisle, you know, because I'm like 100 and I pee, you know, all the time. And so he says, dude, it, it, you'll you can get on an aisle. Don't worry. It's like <laughs> this will be an open plane. Like you, even if you're not on the aisle, you can find an aisle. You'll be all right. Uh, you don't have to sit in the middle seat. I do. Um. What was it like when you got your first critique? Was it positive? Was it negative? Did you rush to the paper? Were you terrified? I don't. I don't read them. Um, and I that was uh, the advice that I got from my co-star on that show, a guy named Boyd Gaines, who's still a dear friend. Um, uh, he told me, and this is a guy who's been nominated for for five Tonys. Uh, and at the time, he had been up for I think he'd been nominated for four, three or four at that time, and had won them all. Um, he told me that if you read the reviews, uh, and if, even if you decide, I just want to read the good ones. Um, and if you read it and you believe it, um, there's still negatives in there. So for instance, there's a review. If the review says the way he moved his hand in this one moment was so magnet, you know, just whatever it is, they pick out a specific moment, which they usually do. Um, you're going to think about that the next time you're up on stage and you got to do it every night, you know, eight times a week. When it gets to that moment in the show, you might be thinking about that reviewer instead of being in the moment that you're supposed to be in. I have read them after I've finished the job. Um, the best review that I could have ever hoped for in that my first job was uh, when the, the morning that the Tony nominations came out because I didn't have any expectations for myself. I was really hopeful that the show would get a nomination and that, that it, people, my castmates would be recognized. Um, and in the end, the show was nominated for seven and one of them came to me and it was a hugely influential moment in my career because all of a sudden I, I had this new asterisk next to my name, you know, and from that point forward, it was Tony nominee Stark Sands. Anytime there was press or anything in that, it does have an effect. It definitely changed things. And it gave me in that one job, this uh, immediate sort of uh, status that, uh, that kept me in New York from that point forward. Lance, you listen, I mean, you, you do local theater. So this is all old hat to you. I mean, this is almost, I'm a stage guy also. Yeah. Yeah. This is almost boring. Um, Just because you know, guys, you're the commercial and, long form apple plus and all that right, you know, right that's great right. but we don't get do-overs we, uh let's let's do that one again hmm. stark stark and i don't get do-overs we have to right. just 
do what we do and we have to do it well. It's a lot more pressure. I don't want to speak for Stark. He's won two more. I mean, he's got two more Emmy. I mean, uh, two more Tony nominations than I have at at least at this time. Yeah, just now. But I do think it's really cool that here's an under attended. uh, There's an under attended play. You get nominated for a Tony. Was part of that like, see you stupid asses? You should have been coming to watch this. That was there. Was there any? Were you still on stage at that particular time? Did it bolster the attendance? It, it did. We uh, when it happened, our producer told us, um, "Okay, we're going to run until the day of the Tonys, so that nobody is so they can't wait because sometimes people will wait to see what wins." Before they buy tickets, and so okay. he said, "We're closing the the morning of the. We're closing on the the you know matinee right before the Tony Awards that night." So that was how my experience ended, and I, uh, it was magic because I got to, you know, I, I had our final performance of the show, five months of a run. We finished the show. We took our final bow. We went backstage. We had a little bit of, sh- of a champagne toast. Everybody, and there were you know two of us who were nominated, and everybody else was invited to come to the Tonys. So we just I went upstairs to my dressing room and I put on my tux and I went downstairs and I got into a, a limo that took me directly to Radio City Music Hall. And then I got out of the limo and then I walked onto the red carpet as a nominee. And it was bananas. Um, to continue that story, which by the way, the show won. Um, best revival of a play. And all of us were told, if we win, go on stage. Just run on stage. Because that's towards the end of the night. And that's what happens. A lot of times, a lot of producers will be standing on stage. Um, But we had so few producers and such a small cast that the producers said, just go. So we ran on stage when they announced our name. And I got to stand up there with the small cast and the producers (laughs) to accept the award. And it was a pretty awesome moment. The next morning I got on a plane and I flew to Africa to uh, shoot a television show called Generation Kill where Eric was waiting for me. He'd been there for a week or two doing boot camp. Wow. Straight from straight from the milit from a military role to a military role. And I've I've talked about I've talked to Eric about this. We had Michael Kelly. So we talked about the military. Eric did his military time and now he's an astronaut time. So he's <laughs> He's an he's an astronaut actor not right now, um, but I, I am curious about this. And if I'm out of line, feel free to because I'm just a layperson. But when my wife and I, when we go to New York, we always go to plays. We network. We saw the original cast of of Hamilton. That was like spending money for a national championship or a Super Bowl ticket. It was no joke getting tickets to that. Um, but we love something rotten when that was nominated, and it was just long day's journey when it was there. So I've always wondered when something starts on public theater, like, and I know you can't speak specifically to Hamilton, but when a show really takes off, you get in at a certain expectation financially. Is there renegotiations? Do you have bonuses? Like how does that work when you are wildly successful and that wasn't the expectation early on when you do your contract? How how does that even work from a stage standpoint? Well, it's changed because of Hamilton. Um, that actors are now, uh, it's, it's not an uncommon thing to, for them to work in a deal where once the show starts making money, uh, that, that the cast will share a point, right. We'll share like 1%, um, among everybody in the cast. That's what Hamilton did. And that's what, I mean, I'm grateful to them for that because we, we got that deal on To Kill a Mockingbird, which was the last job that I had on Broadway, which was a big success. And it would be still running right now if things were happening. Um, 
Kinky Boots was a show that I did that started in Chicago, uh, started with just a couple readings, which is typical for musicals and plays that, that are starting out. You you do just readings around the table or you do staged sort of performances for invited uh, producers audience that, that you're, they're basically showing it to producers saying, hey, would you like to give us money to make this show? This is just a representation of it. So Kinky Boots went to Chicago. We did an out of town run there. Um, and, uh, you know, we made a lot of changes and we found ourselves on Broadway, uh, the following season. And it was a very wonderful surprise hit and ran for five years or six years. And, uh, I had my, age, I think it's up to the agents, really. My agents built in a structure where if we, um, surpassed a certain, uh, dollar amount at the box office, then I would get a bonus. Right. And, and every, every so many segments of increase over that number, I would get an additional bonus of so much. And if we ever broke $2 million in a week, I got a big bonus because I was one of the two leads of the show. I was able to negotiate that. And because they negotiated it so early on when there were no expectations, maybe the producers were like, yeah, sure. Why not? You know, because so few shows make that kind of money. Um, so I think it's, it all depends on the actor and their representation to answer your question. Gemma, um, you didn't sign up. Well, you did sign up, actually, but you probably <laughs> didn't know what you were signing up for when you married an actor. Um, but, you know, being a part of a show, you know, eight shows a week, it's a grueling week. Um, and you're gone at night. You're gone in the afternoon and you're home way late at night. And then, um, you know, what's it? What's it like to now be because you you're in that life too? Um, it, it, just talk a, bit, a little bit about like what that's like from your point of view. I um, I struggle with it. Uh, yeah. I it's not my favorite schedule, but it is the work that Stark loves to do, um, and so you know, and it is the work that he does. So I just you know, it's it's a luxury really to to, to complain about it. Um, but I do love to complain about it. Um, in the beginning, it was it was definitely um, I I was very homesick when I first moved to New York. I didn't know anybody. I only knew Stark and his cats, and I spent more time with his cats. I think with a very so. Um, uh, he, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an odd schedule because, yeah, like you say, the times when you would usually be uh, spending time together as a couple like the evenings and weekends, um, they're gone. And, um, you know, there's a lot of extra stuff too. Um, and, and so it is quite all consuming. And I think you end up you probably, you know, you could testify to this, Eric, putting a lot of emotional energy into, um, the work that you do. And, and certainly, you know, uh, when it's, it's a theater job, you're 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 very much living in that world and come part of the family with your past and and so I think there were times where I felt quite on the outside of that. Um, it's a very strange thing to to be the real person involved with somebody when they're in a cast of actors because the other actors tend to see you as this sort of strange reality check. You know that that mm. they are you your partner is theirs in a way when mm -hmm. they're together. And so they almost don't really want to engage with you too much because <laughs> they sort of want to keep this bubble. And I and I completely understand that. But I think at the time it was like a real collision of, of 
being homesick and sort of seeing and also seeing him kiss other people on stage was kind of you know it's, there's a part of your brain that's like rationalize rationalize and then there's yeah. part of your brain that's like oh my god what's he doing and everyone in the in around you is cheering while <laughs> this girl and you're like okay this is this is fine this is fine and it's also different because you do that in a, in a movie or a tv show you do it once or you do it however many takes it is and, then it's, <laughs> and you watch it once and then it's passed and you get past it as a couple but coming to see, I mean, if, if, if the tables were turned and Gemma had to kiss some guy every single night, I would probably have feelings about it, too. Of course. Jamie, of course. Jamie Vardy. <laughs> that's a, a Lester City joke, Eric. Don't worry about it. Okay. Um, I, yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that, Gemma. And it's, you know, the theater runs that I've done have been far smaller but you know having been in orlando for six months last year and i find that you know i come back into the family and katie is usually at that point got a routine down you know i mean she's got her routine down and she's a single mom at this point and you know then i come in and i'm like hey you know and there's there's this there's always about a uh like a 36 hour window where I've got to find my way into that routine without fucking it up too much. Because she's like, look, I've got this going. Like, I can't, ha I can't have you pop in every 10 days and fuck it up. Right. <laughs> so, so I've got to find a way in, um, you know, and have that time before I then skip out and head back to Florida. And it is, it is one of the, Listen, it's one of the downsides of of what we do and the profession we do because the time away from family is is hard. You know, it's very different than a than you know a standard nine to five job where you're coming home at the end of the day and spending time with the family. I, on the flip side, when I am not shooting something, and Stark, you and I have kind of talked about this a lot, but like we're afforded that time to really dig in, you know, and I can take the kids to school and I can spend time with them after school and really spend time being a parent um, and kind of almost build equity so that when I then leave, I don't feel so guilty about it. Um, but I know that it's very, it's a very different viewpoint for Katie and you than it is for us because you're at home kind of holding it down while we're off doing our thing. Katie is the queen like katie is spectacular i remember before we had kids like just thinking i i don't quite know how i'm gonna do this and i still look at her like that like she's like on another level and she just seems to cope with everything i feel like i'm such a whinger i'm like you need i need that equity you need to rebuild it you know it's almost like he's like working at altitude and then he needs to come back and reacclimatize and like do it quick i just feel like <laughs> Like, I feel like she's one of those, she just, nothing phases her. You know, she just, she just does it. And she does it like with such style and she's kind of like an inspiration. Isn't that hard though? When you start comparing, I, I do it. My wife does it. We compare ourselves against, we have five kids, four in the house right now. And we look at it and say, <laughs> look at them doing so much better. Look at them. And and you're hard on yourself a lot of times as a parent. I mean, we're all parents here on the on the podcast. It is easy to to think everyone else is doing, and then you turn on Instagram to to call back yeah. our first segment. Like, wow, everyone's having this incredible life. My my wife goes through Facebook like this. Oh wow, this this is an amazing 
vacation that they're taking. Wow, what a great family. They're all doing this together. And I can hear, I know what's happening. Yeah. I can hear. And I said, hey, is something go? Do, do, do we need to talk? Are you? Because I can sense that she is like, everyone else is so amazing and we're not. And they're doing amazing things like, please turn the social media off. We're hard enough on ourselves. I think that's the thing is like, it's, it just come to a point where sometimes I think like, what are we trying to win? Like, why are we always in competition with each other? Being like, I'm living such a good life. You know, I'm living the best <laughs> life ever. You know, why? It just, who does it serve? It's not even true. It's like, it's just a bizarre kind of human response that I think we've developed and social media just kind of gets in there and amps it up. I call it ba- banjo Instagram is the worst. People who try to flex with banjos, the worst. Yep. Is is this the day, June second, two thousand twenty, that we all just kill our Instagram accounts? Like, are we making this happen today? Can we? I mean, I just I, like I, I've had such um, like the 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 struggle with like, and I don't know what it is. I like, I, this is what I said to Katie and she wouldn't mind me probably saying this on the air, but I was like, you're a really smart grown woman who is in a bad mood. Every time you look at Instagram yet, we still go back to it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and I'm, 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 a, I'm the same. And I know you guys are the same because you just talked about it. But it's like, what is it about it that just it's, you know, and she equated it to video games. You know, this they have they have the smartest people in the world building algorithms that make this as addictive as possible. But it is true, though. I mean, you guys, I can tell by the way that you guys have talked about it. You've seen some of the same things I have. Facebook developed it. Social media is developed to give you the same endorphin rush that you get from slot machines and from Vegas. And it, it is, it is developed that way. So you spend more time on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Jimmy, did you watch the game? You guys, the Julian fellows Netflix show? No, no, you know, I haven't yet. I know. I Should I No, you guys? Sh- yeah. Yeah. Check it out. I mean, here's the thing. I, I, sorry, I'm always pretty clunky with segues, but I thought about it and I like it. Um, so, so it's Julian fellows who created Downton Abbey. Yeah. Um, and it's about the inception of, of soccer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found it very interesting. I am sure it is riddled with, uh, you know, things that you'd look at that say, you know, inaccuracies that you would be able to find. I, I wasn't, I, it is certainly though, much like Downton Abbey, it deals very much in a class system, uh, which it shines a light on. Um, and it also is a bit of a soap opera you know, but just veiled in the beginning in the origin of soccer. But I I found it to be really fascinating. I guess what I really, I didn't realize that it was such a wealthy upper class game that the, that they didn't want working class people to play. And that that was like, you know, a real struggle for working class players to, to come in and, and would apparently steal this game from, you know, the upper class, um, and so I, I found it interesting. I guess we can't talk about it because you didn't watch it, but maybe watch it and then we can talk about it because I, I think you would find it quite interesting. Gemma, what was soccer like at its inception? Can you speak to that <laughs> way back, you know, 300 years ago or whatever? <laughs> no, I actually do have something you can talk about. And you guys are uniquely positioned for this now because you said you learned an accent. What accent did you learn? Start. 
for your. I had, I had to learn uh, RP, which stands for received pronunciation. It's a, a standard British dialect. For okay, that. perfect, perfect. So now when I watch shows now, like I finished Succession, which is fantastic on HBO. And as I go through the list, I realize, wow, maybe half of the, the and I'm used to this now, half of the cast of any show, if I don't know this actor or actress, if I don't know them previously, they're either British or Australian. That's almost, it's amazing how good the transition of the accent is. However, maybe Gemma can answer this. Why do we never see the same transition from an American actor? Is it because of all the dialects that are available in England? Like, why do we not see that? Because English people think they're the best at everything, um, and especially acting. Yep. And then we get validated in that because we export all our actors elsewhere. And it still is like the class system in the UK. You know, we still have a royal family, which, you know, when you look at it on paper is, is really crazy to still have a bunch of like people living in a castle in the middle of this like London, you know, but it's so funny. <laughs> I'm like, I, 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 I'm somebody who, who doesn't like, I don't, bear them any ill will, but I don't think we should have a royal family, right? Because that like in, feeds everything. Because then you believe like people can be born into like having a better life and a privilege that other people can't. But like since I've been in the States, I think I'm going off on a tangent, sorry. But I've, I've been amazed at how many people love the royal family here. And I want to love like, you guys, like you you do know there was like a big like war thing that you guys fought to like, you know, <laughs> you know what this country is built on right it's like not that but like I was swimming with with the kids in in like a public swimming pool and this guy heard me talking to them and he just swam over and he's like English I was like yeah and he's like well I'm really sorry about Megan you know and I feel like I feel like destroyed the royal family and I want to be like yeah but you're American. Like that was the whole point of you being here, <laughs> destroying the royal family. Like it's just bizarre. So yeah, I don't know if that's but I feel like that that class system, like we export our actors. And I think there's something here, that fetishization of like, you know, the upper classes in England and you, you know, nothing against them, but you're Benedicts and you're everybody else and thinking that there's something sort of slightly more special about them. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I've experienced that on a um, fr from a auditioning standpoint and a job getting or not getting standpoint. Um, <clears throat> without getting into detail, there have been opportunities that I've come very close on, um, and, and and the most recent one was to play a uh, an American um, who uh, grew up in the South, um, who moved to New York, and uh, was earnest and like all of my qualities, just like tick tick tick. Um, and, but it was from a, uh, an English, uh, producer, showrunner. And, um, I got very, very close. I was the choice of the director. And in the end, the creator of the show wasn't into it and wanted to keep looking and that's fine. Uh, but when I saw who they finally cast, um, three quarters of this cast of American actors, sorry, of American characters, three quarters of them are English and are people that he just wanted to bring over because he knew that they would be able to do a good job. And I find that really when it's that obvious that, um, that they don't trust us, uh, even when it's, I mean, I, I guess I can understand it if it's casting an American to play an English person, like, okay, I had, I was the, 
um, you know, I had to accept that when Kinky Boots uh, went to London, I thought it'd be really fun to go do it. And they explained to me and Billy Porter that <laughs> because it's an English story, uh, we we don't want to upset them. Right. We, we, we want to cast English people. And I, I was like, you know what? That makes sense. Maybe down the road. Well, we still got a big W with Bridget Jones. So as far as I'm concerned, we kind of won that battle. <laughs> yeah. Eric, I have this memory of being um, over at your place for dinner some years ago and you just watched some British comedy that you really didn't like. Mm. And I remember you saying, I just, something about British humour. And you're like, just not sure, just not sure about British humour. And I remember being, it was like a dagger to the heart. <laughs> what? Okay, if you tell me it's Peep Show that you didn't like, this is the last podcast we do together. Because Peep Show is my favorite comedy of all time. So I remember, I remember that it was the one, um, they had sent it to me because of course America was like, well, it worked there. Let's do a mm-hmm. remake. Um, it was the one that takes place in like a nursing home. Was it called like getting on, get on, getting on, I, moving was, on, whatever it was, it was terrible. It was awful. It was unwatchable. Yeah. And I actually, you, you know, like I love I love British comedies. Like I, I love watching like the original office and uh, I, many of them. Um, but, but, but I remember watching that and being like, Oh, hell no. This is, pu- <laughs> this is putrid. So, some of it is the worst, the worst you'll ever, ever watch in your life. But I just watched, uh, somebody just sent me and I was in tears laughing at, um, the Monty Python sketch of the cheese shop. And I mean, there's just some like British humor that I can't get enough of like I, that. I just, you know, I think is amazing. Um, I have this idea. I know this is probably really, I don't know if this is a compliment or not, but I, I, I always had this idea that like, cause I listened to your um, podcast when you were talking about Wes Craven was so funny oh, yes you worked with him and he was like you were like expecting him to come over with this bit of advice yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> nothing uh, nothing um, forgot what i was gonna say but i have this yeah idea that like they're gonna do they're gonna do a reboot of nightmare on elm street and like you're gonna be the new freddy krueger don't you think let's make it happen there was a back when imdb the internet movie database had chat chat Remember, they had message boards at one point, and they got rid of them because the message boards got gnarly. And I remember... <laughs> Imagine was, that, the internet. Who knew? Um, I remember that there was a thread, like the beefiest thread on my message board was arguments from people on whether or not I I was Robert England's son. Freddie, <laughs> <laughs> the actor who played Freddy Krueger. Yes. I mean, I was like, good Lord. Uh, I, of Son course, my of mom. Freddie is such a great pitch for you. My mom was like, you need to get on there and tell them that you are not the son of Robert England. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't need to do that, mom. But I see it. I just really see it. I And, and I think Freddie, like horror film characters, he's like, he's elevated, isn't he? He's nuanced. I think you would bring well, a lot of that. If only we had writers and actors you know that we could get that done and i i'm looking at i'm looking at one <laughs> <laughs> tell us what you're doing now jim um i'm i'm well i'm writing fiction now um i went back to college last year to do a, a um, masters in fiction 
Uh, and so I've been noodling around with uh, a novel, basically, which is kind of a strange time to be writing fiction, but it's helpful, you know, actually to get out of this world and into another one. So hmm. we'll see how that pans out. Do you share yeah, your I mean, work I- with Stark at the time as you're writing? Do, does do you, Are you guys sounding boards for each other at all, or do you wait until the finished product is out? I use him a lot, and I generally hope that he just goes, oh, my God, wow. Um, but he's really, really, really a good reader and, like, really constructive. So, um, yeah. Try to be. Try to be. I don't think it would be fair just to say great job uh, to every single thing. It, all of it is great. But if but if you want uh, some um, honest feedback, I think that's always more constructive. Uh and he's so details oriented. Yeah. Like he'll he'll pick up on the tiniest little details and be like, "Did you know that <laughs> this is the wrong kind of tree for this?" And I'm like, <laughs> uh, "Right, yeah." Um, and for my part, uh, since I left New York, since we moved away from New York City three almost four years ago, uh, Gemma is my my audition partner for all of them. Um, when it comes to, you know, on tape auditions, which is more and more, um, certainly being up here. So I don't audition. I don't, I don't rehearse with Gemma. I rehearse by myself. Uh, and then she comes down and I try to create a, a situation where it's a scheduled time and we're going to do it up to a handful of takes. And I don't like doing more than a handful because I'm too much of a control freak to, uh, I would just do it over and over again. And it would never be perfect. I would never be happy with it. Um, but I feel like simulating the audition experience is the best for me because then I can, I can get nervous for it. And those nerves can help. Uh, I can, uh, you know, there's, I only have so many, you know, takes and, and so I gotta sort of, I gotta know my shit and, uh, and then I send it off. So you have a, you've got a, I mean, let's not call it great. You got a decent English dialect. Um, <laughs> um, have you ever thought of, uh, going into this is, a, I think you should do this from now on. Uh, you do your research, you realize the showrunner's British. You roll in full wow. British. Wow. And then when you read the scene, you drop into your American accent. That's genius. Yeah. That's I, the play. I am going to take that the next time. The next time I, I'm walking into a situation like that, because what have I got to lose? Well, see, Lance already knows because I've already told him about my process when I read things like Scott Anderson, uh, you know, like that. I, I got to go. I got to get in that mindset early. So you just do the old okie doke, you know, and then that way when you get to set and you get off the plane and the showrunner's like, hey, man, you know, and you're like, hey, what's up? He's like, whoa, what? You know, they might even think you're in character already. You never even have to go back to British. <laughs> so good. It's a really good oh. moment. Just a call ahead by your agent just saying, listen, right now he's in character as he's flying over. So I want you to know that what you hear is his authentic character. Okay. So don't be put off. Right. Yeah. It's really good. You get right off the plane. Good. You're Stark. Uh-huh. I love that, Eric. That's why you're that's why you're that slimy little Scott Anderson that I mm-hmm. see on Bosch. I've got some horrific stories from when I was a freshman partying too much. I was in New Orleans at hmm. Tulane. So that's I never really had a chance. Most of us don't. Freshmen mm-hmm. going to New Orleans, mm. no chance. But you're in California, right? So freshman Eric Layton. Well, what was freshman Eric Layton like? 
Oh man, I, I should go grab a picture. I have a picture on the, on the wall upstairs. Um, Eric and I ended up as roommates freshman year because uh, like, I think I had friends who met him uh, at like some, some parties in Austin, Texas. I grew up in Dallas and Austin is like where everybody gravitates towards you. You know, this Lance Yeah. Um, to party whenever you're like in, in your later high school years. And so I, I met some of his friends, he met some of my friends and they said, Oh yeah, my friend's going to USC. And so we ended up getting each other's numbers and content saying, let's be roommates. Um, freshman year. I learned that Eric uh, takes five showers a day. Um, he can nap. He's like the, the, the best napper. Uh, for example, in the morning, the alarm would go off. I'd be up and we'd have class together because we were both theater majors. And I'd be like, dude, it's time. We got to go. And Eric in bed would pull the covers off his head and go, all right, dude, just uh, just wake me up in 30 seconds. 30, you used a human 30-second snooze button? For real. And he would go to sleep. Right back to sleep. You'd have to wake him up, and then mm-hmm. he'd have to shower? Or like, when did the showers, how did they take place? Well, Eric, I mean, I know that Eric showers first thing in the morning, last thing, and like at least two or three times in between. Anytime he breaks any kind of sweat, it is shower time. <laughs> Uh, we, we were our freshman year, we lived in a dorm that wasn't like a traditional dorm. It was more of like suites. So we had our room that connected to three other, three other or two other rooms, three, three other rooms of, of like, uh, two people. And they all connected to one like living room that we shared. And we were the only two that were, uh, in the, for going into the fraternity system and pledged a fraternity together. Um, and so we would come home to this little suite and we were like, kings these guys worshipped us because we were like i don't know they thought we were cool and i don't know if eric has done his uh tim ralph character for you (laughs) no no he has not because we would come home and we'd be up late and and i have audio of this that i can send you if you need to use it for the show sure prank he would prank call people at usc because all you had to do was dial four digits Instead of like a full number, it was like, you know, that's how the system worked. And you knew you'd get somebody in at USC and we would prank people, other people who were up late. And Eric would, Eric created uh, this character who was, who worked in maintenance service. (laughs) Main game was to try to get somebody to walk over, walk to their bathroom and flush the toilet because he was working on them pipes. How successful was Tim typically, Eric? Really, really it depended on on the people, but he we he had lots of success. And and we, uh, he didn't do it, he got angry. We got we got one guy. I told him that we were gonna have to come in tomorrow and we were gonna have to cut open the walls of his dorm room. So he needed to get everything off the floor. That's right. And he had some <laughs> oh, that's great. He had some cinder blocks. And I said, You need to set your bed up on those cinder blocks because we're going to really tear the shit out of that room. We're going to, we're going to go about two feet up. We're going to tear the whole room up. So I need you to put your bed on cinder blocks. Mm -hmm. I need you to put all your stuff on top of your bed. We'll be there at six in the morning. This is it like one in the morning. No. Fast forward to about three hours later, we walk by the guy's room. There's a bed on cinder blocks. So many, so many stories, fun stories of that, that are, that I uh, treasure, Eric. So I'm so grateful to still be as connected with you as we are. 
Um, Lance, every time we go to LA, we found an Airbnb that is literally back to back with Eric's house. Yeah. And so we can like, we could like toss a beer over the fence to each other. If some, somebody needed, needed something. That's, like I think you're going to love this story. I'll just tell it one. I'll tell it probably seven times on this podcast to all of Eric's, um, friends who are, are end up being guests on a podcast. So I'm in LA, I was flying in doing stuff on NFL network and, <laughs> So we go to Eric. What was the place called? Public we went school to, bus. I think public or? public school. Public in school. Culver City. So we go to a place called Public School. <clears throat> so we go. We sit down. The guy who's the bartender comes out. And we're in the bar area, and he comes and gets our drink order and our food order. This is when you used to be able to go in public, and you know, be with each other <laughs> years ago, pre-COVID. Yeah, years ago, seemingly, and. Um, so everything's fine. And I'm just the guy who flies in. I fly in like four times a year, three times a year. No big deal. Eric lives there and clearly has, has, has done a lot of work. I mean, he's done a lot of great shows and I'm not even joking. This, his IMDB is filled with just people go, wow, wow, wow. So I'm sitting there and it comes time to order and we order. He goes, I'm sorry, guys, I, I hate to do this. And I said, Oh, I'll take the, I'm like reaching for the guy's camera so I can take a picture with him and Eric because I figure uh, he's a generation kill guy. Maybe he's the killing, you know, I don't know what kind of Eric Layden fan this is. He goes, I'm sorry. I just got to say, um, are you Lance Sirline? And I said, yes, I am. He goes, I love your draft work. Um, I thought it was you. I thought I recognized you. I love your stuff. And I said, Oh, thanks a lot. He walks away. And all I could think of was, this has got to feel horrible for Eric. <laughs> I come into his town. One time we go out to dinner and this guy's like, are you Lance Sirline from NFL.com and the mock drafts that you put out? What? Yes, I am. Which version do you like? It's, do you need me to sign or do you want a selfie or what do we need to do here? And so I felt kind of bad for Eric at that moment, but I figured eh, I'll just use this in the future. Uh, that was yeah, so, so good. I love that story. I love that. That's so good. That's so Are good. you Lancer? My wife said, why would he even know? Why would he care about you? I said, can you let me have this story? And stop killing it. God. <laughs> All right. Well, that's enough Eric bashing for <laughs> 10 minutes. Uh, you guys, we're going to let you get back to kids. Uh, this was a lovely hour and a half reprieve from what's happening outside. Seriously. Um, really, really loved it. Yeah, really had fun with you guys, and um, we'll see you soon. Right, Thanks man. for coming on. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye. You like that artwork we've got? Of course you do. How could you not? It's by Tony Moles at Anthem Agency. He can be found at the Anthem Agency, but Anthem doesn't have an E, so it's just a little confusing. It's A-N-T-H-M Agency. Dot com. Tony Moles, he's a fantastic dude, extremely talented. You can go to him for any of your graphic design needs. If you like our music, it's by Josh Cook, C-O-O-K-E. He can be found on his website, herelisefoe.com. And of course, as mentioned earlier in the podcast, Blackland Distillery out of Fort Worth, providing fine spirits to Lance and I, as well as our guests, they can be found at blacklanddistillerifw.com or on Instagram uh, and Twitter under the same name. Have a fantastic week, everybody.